0: Good morning. Good to have you with us this morning. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. Happy New Year. You guys ready for New Year? If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Philippians chapter 3. We're looking at verses 12 through 21. This is our Joy to the World teaching series. Jesus coming to this earth was, was and is good news of great joy. We're working our way through the book of Philippians, and Paul is not only demonstrating through his own life and the life of those that he's writing to, but he's also teaching us how we can have this good news of great joy regardless of what's happening in our lives. Key verse to this whole uh, book is found in Philippians 4.4. Maybe you can recite it with me, if if you would, please. It is, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. So the key to this uh, good news of great joy in every dimension of our life is found in rejoicing in the Lord. And today we're going to talk about joy in exhaustion. Take a look at your notes there, part of the intro. There is an exhaustion that goes much deeper than physical that all the vacations in the world cannot cure. How many have ever gone on vacation, came back more exhausted than when you went? Yeah, show of hands, yep, absolutely. I think, and that's interesting that we've, and I used to do that year after year. I'd go to get some rest and find myself more exhausted. But there is a rest in God that all the decisions, demands, and deadlines of life cannot shake. Here's our problem. Much of our exhaustion is from our failure to rest in the finished work of the cross, St. Augustine from his book Confessions states, You have made us for Yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in You. Psalm 91.1, the psalmist says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. So to the point that we are learning how to dwell in Him, we are learning. We will learn, and we will experience rest—rest rest for our weary souls. How many would say? Another, another survey here. I like doing surveys. Uh, how many would say that 2010 was was a pretty exhausting year? Show of hands. Show of hands. Yeah, some of you are raising both hands. <laughs> Yes, both hands. And how many would say that even, uh, not only was it an exhausting year, but the holidays were really particularly exhausting and you're really happy to be heading into a brand new year. Show of hands. How many would like to have a maybe two to three week vacation right from this point on until the end of the year? How many need more like six months? Yeah. I can't give you any of that, but but I can give you uh, what the Bible teaches us about this topic on exhaustion. And I, I can guarantee you this, that if you apply these truths that we're going to learn if you apply these to your life it will help you in this area of exhaustion you can have joy in the midst of exhaustion in fact i'm convinced that if you apply these truths to your life that 2011 2011 will be the best year ever you guys ready let's do it bow your heads with me let's take a moment let's once again go before the throne of grace god we we absolutely love you we are in love with you because you are um, unbelievably in love with us, and uh, as we come to you this morning to study your word, we are reminded of this this idea of joy that you give us a joy which is a buoyancy, and many of us here need that buoyancy in our lives. though life has beat us up and pushed us down it doesn 't keep us down because of this this hope we have in you, this joy. And this buoyancy is based on the pleasures we find in the eternal privileges that you have provided for us through the cross, Lord Jesus. We thank you for that. We thank you that these eternal privileges, that our past sins are completely forgiven, that we don't have to live with a lot of guilt and shame. And that not only are our past sins forgiven, but our present problems can be managed no matter what we face. That there is no hurt, habit, or hang up that goes beyond your grace, that is working, working in our lives this morning. That you indwell us with your presence. We thank you for that. And God, not only are those true, but but also our future is secure in you. And we thank you for that. God, we pray this morning that through this understanding of your word, as we walk through the implications of what you want to speak to us through your word. That you would grow within our hearts a deep, durable delight in you, Lord Jesus. In your splendor, your glory, your beauty. For who you are and what you've done that would absolutely ruin us for anything else. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Take a look at Philippians chapter 3. We're going to read through the text. And then we will unpack it. Starting at verse 12. Chapter 3, Philippians, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what is And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This is the word of the Lord. Three things we're looking at this morning as we unpack the text. Joy and exhaustion happens when I, number one, stop pretending to have it all together. That's candid evaluation. Number two, steadily let go of past baggage. That's consistent elimination. And then number three, stay focused on finding deep satisfaction in Christ. That would be careful exaltation. Let's start with the first one. Number one, stop pretending to have it all together. This is candid evaluation verse 12 keep your bibles open he says not that i have already attained this or am already perfect verse 13 he says brothers i do not consider that i have already that i have made it my own that's pretty amazing coming from the pen of the apostle paul now what is he talking about that he hasn't arrived yet he's talking about the previous verses we looked at last week and uh, what did he say he goes through this whole resume he he talked about his his accomplishments his accolades his achievements his acquisitions pretty significant pretty profound what he said and yet all of that he compared it to a big steaming pile of your next door neighbor's dog in your front yard yeah he called it crap he said all of this is crap That's what it, that's actually what it, it actually, it's a little more vivid than that. Actually, I'm not going to say that word this morning. But uh, though some of you use that word, but it's, uh, it's, it's, it's actually a little bit more vivid than that in the, in the Greek. It would actually be considered profanity in our society. But I think it's very, I think it's important not to get hung up on the word or what word he uses. The fact is, is that everything that he had accomplished, everything that he had clung to, thinking that this was going to bring him life, he considered it crap compared to the surpassing knowledge of knowing the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and having a righteousness, having an acceptance, significance, and security in him, that God would, would accept him and he would stand before God, perfectly righteous, all is well between God and I, because of the work of Jesus Christ, now, this is what's amazing about what he's saying. And, then, and, and, and he's saying, but I haven't attained that yet. I haven't, I'm not living in the full reality of all that he has provided for me. And that's pretty astounding for the Apostle Paul to say that. But here he's reaching the end of his life. And the Apostle Paul is responsible for writing two-thirds of the New Testament. So if you're writing Bible, I would say, wow, that's pretty good, okay? Uh, You're up there somewhere, way beyond where I am. Because I don't write Bible, and I never have, and and won't. Uh, I think that's already been taken care of for us. And yet here's a guy that wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, and yet he's saying, you know what, I haven't arrived yet. I'm not there yet. I don't have it all together. And by the way, we need to understand that none of us will have it all together this side of eternity, no matter how hard you work. And so the first step, if you want 2011 to be the best year ever, it's got to start right there. You've got to acknowledge within your own life. You've got to stop pretending to have it all together. There's this candid evaluation. Nothing will drain you more than pretense, game-playing, mask-wearing, and nothing will recharge you more than when you are around friends who who love you unconditionally now have you ever noticed this so that when you get around certain people who man they are a drain i am so glad we didn't spend as much time as we did you know with them but, but i love being around these other people do you have people like that some people are a drain. other people kind of refuel you show of hands show of hands and maybe you haven't ever given it much thought it's probably a good thing to do. And maybe, maybe some of you, I mean, you just finished up the holidays and it's been incredibly draining being around your family because they are a drain. And maybe that's the case, but did you ever want to know why people are such a drain? It's typically because you can't be yourself. It's not safe. There's a lot of pretense going on. But man, there's something about it. When you can be with people, you can be yourself. There's no pretense, no mask wearing, no game playing. And by the way, you shouldn't probably be doing the, the pretense anyway around those folks that you tend to feel like you can't anyway. I mean, you really shouldn't because it just it's it's called codependency. I mean, it's kind of really unhealthy if you're tap dancing, kind of walking around on eggshells with, with their certain people and they're, they're kind of more high-maintenance. And, and you, you probably should be a little bit more bold in, with those relationships. And, and we'll talk a little bit more about that, how we can get there with that. But that's, that's really the case. And we, what we've got to do is we've got to stop pretending to have it all together. This candid evaluation. So, what does that look like? Here's your next couple of fill in the blanks. This is what it looks like: no towering or cowering. So, if, if you're beginning to be like the Apostle Paul and say, "Hey, you know what? I haven't attained it yet. I'm not. I haven't, I'm not perfect. I haven't arrived." Then it's going to eliminate the superiority. It's going to eliminate the inferiority. It's going to eliminate the the boasting. And it's going to also eliminate the self-pity. What, what, how does that look? Well, basically what I'm talking about here, these are the two sides of the same coin. It's called pride. It's called self-absorption. It's called self-centeredness. It's a part of our, uh, our sinful nature. It's that we want to be preoccupied with ourself. It's really promoted in our society today. And, uh, and obviously this would be what we've often called humble confidence, What does this look like to be able to stop pretending to have it all together? This candid evaluation would be humble confidence. It would be a blessed self-forgetfulness. It's that the reason why we're preoccupied with ourselves, the reason why we're so self-absorbed is because we're so empty. It's because we're not content. We're not really satisfied. And it's because we were all created. Now listen to me. We were created to go before the throne of grace and to receive mercy and find grace to help us in our life and to look into the very face of the living God through His Word and through worship and to, and to receive the value that He places upon us. And when we spend time in the very presence of God, and I, get, I have these moments in my life. I wish every, every time I sat down in devotions or even in worship, today I had one of those experiences as I was worshiping, particularly with that last song, The Old Rugged Cross. There was a moment as I began to look into the cross and understand and walk through the implications mentally of all that Jesus Christ has accomplished for me. Man, it just, be, it just warmed my heart. There was a heart experience that began to take place on this objective truth of who Jesus is and what He's done for me. And it began to change me and it began to fill my life up. And it's out of that that I'm, I have this blessed self-forgetfulness and I can begin to think about others in my life. I'm not so focused on myself anymore. And, uh, and that's what he's talking about here. And that's why Paul could be so open, so candid in his evaluation. Hey, I haven't arrived. I'm not anywhere close. Wait a minute, Paul. You've been doing this your whole life and you haven't arrived yet? No, no, I haven't. I'm nowhere close. Oh, but man, I love him, and I'm pursuing him. And yes, I have an experience with him, but I want more. I want more. And that's what he's saying through this. Uh, when I think about my, my uh, marriage relationship, Nancy and I, in the early years when we first got uh, married, um, I, did the, I did a lot of the towering, and she did the cowering. Sounds kind of strange, but that was really kind of the makeup of our relationship. And somewhere it got turned around a little bit later on in our life. And now she does the towering and I do the cowering. That's not completely true. Actually, she's never really done much. She's not good at towering. She's been obviously, you know, much more humble than I am. But she did confront me. And the more she got filled up with God, the more she could stand up to me and challenge me. And then I begin to realize my own self absorption, my own pride, as I I begin to towering as a lot of control and manipulation. And this is the two sides of the same coin as I talked about, and it just really comes out of an emptiness within our own life because we're not we're not coming before the throne of grace regularly and receiving His mercy and finding grace to fill us up so that we are less preoccupied and we can think about the needs of others. And we've talked about it throughout this, particularly uh, in Philippians chapter 2, the first part of that. We did a study a number of weeks ago on that. But what this, this idea of towering is saying is that this uh, superiority is that I deserve admiration because I have achieved so much. Look how great I am. And then the self-pity part, the inferiority, is that, hey, I deserve admir- admiration because I have suffered so much. So you can see how those kind of work together. And, and so I'm, I'm less, less preoccupied. By the way, I, started, I wrote down some thoughts on this, too, as it relates to uh, how to identify this. If I'm really finding my sense of completeness in Christ, what does that look like in, in the dynamics of relationships? And is what that looks like is that I can admit when I'm wrong. Is that you can actually admit when you're wrong. And I didn't do much of that probably the first decade of our marriage relationship. In fact, I didn't want to be wrong. I needed to be right. And that was part of it. And we'll talk a little bit about that on the next point. But you can admit that you're wrong. You, you can apologize. You seek reconciliation. I mean, my goodness, what Jesus has done for us, when you understand the implications of that, you begin to live that out in your life. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's pretty heavy duty. And so uh, you seek reconciliation. You're open to criticism. Well, wow, that was something that I was really bad at. I mean, I would—I was very defensive, and I would either have, I would blow up, as you heard Gary in that uh, testimony about marriage relationship, she couldn't say anything to him because he would blow up. I'd either blow up or I'd have a meltdown. You know, like, you don't love me? Well, forget you. I'm out of here. You know, kind of that attitude. But it was because I wasn't going before the throne of grace and receiving his mercy and grace to help me so that I could be filled up, so I could learn to respond to that in a healthier way. And... uh There was a lot of uh, blame shifting, excuse making. Uh, I wouldn't take responsibility. Hey, I'm not denying the hits that you've taken. There's no doubt about it. You, You might have family members that are just a pain. I understand that. But they don't control you unless you allow them to control you. They can have influence on you, but they don't control you. And so that's part of the dynamics of really learning who's in charge of my life. I'm following him. I'm allowing him to lead and control my life. How about conflict resolution? Are you good at conflict resolution? That's going to tell you a little bit about uh, where you go for your sense of identity, and then out of that, then you're able to respond appropriately to the conflict. And I, I taught you this a few weeks back, probably, actually it's been a couple months now, but do you attack the person or do you attack the problem? Remember the, when you do A, I feel B, I would prefer that you would do C, but am I missing something? And That's the kind of dialogue that should go on in our life. And that's evidence of the fact that, hey, I don't have it together. I know. I know. I have. God's still working on me. So please forgive me. I want to get better as a husband. But let's work through this. And so that's what that looks like. I haven't arrived. That's what Paul is saying. It's pretty astounding. And that's where we need to start as we head into 2011, as we need to take that honest look at ourselves. And so it's no towering, no cowering. But it's humble confidence. It's a blessed self-forgetfulness. Take a look at the next one. I can be honest about not having it together because Christ has made me his own. Did you catch that? It's kind of subtle once you run through that. But if you look at verse 12, he says, Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Oh, those are tender words. Those are great words. Do you have a sense of him calling you his own? Him saying, Hey, that's, that's my That's my son in whom I am well pleased. I, I love him. Do you have that sense of God saying that to you? Um, where my mom and dad live, they live on uh, two and a half acres. Now it's only about an acre and a quarter. They got rid of the back part of it. But there's this big pasture where, as kids, we would uh, have a bunch of kids in the neighborhood. We'd come together and we'd play uh, kind of a sandlot uh, football. And we'd divide up teams. And you know how you typically kids divide up teams. Even adults divide up teams like this. You line everybody up. You take the two best players. And they become the captains, and the captains go through the line, and they pick, they pick back and forth. The the best players always get picked first. And I, you know, I was sometimes I was a captain, sometimes I was one of those that maybe would kick, bit, get uh, picked first, and then maybe a little bit further. But I was never that last one. Oftentimes, there was always that one that kind of got shoved back and forth between the two. I don't want him. No, you take him. No, I don't want him. And sometimes we feel like that in life, don't we? When it comes to Jesus and Satan, I don't Satan saying, I don't want him. You take him, Jesus, I don't want him on our team. And sometimes we have that sense, and yet you need to know this is what Paul is saying is that because Christ Jesus has made me his own. He has, he picked you, he picked you, he chose you. You were the first one he picked. He he loves all of us as if there's only one of us, as if he lined everybody up and he, he chose you. Do you have that sense of call on your life? By the way, even though I was chosen, there was a few times that because of my poor play, my poor ability, sometimes the guys would say, you're the best player on the opposing team. The way you're playing, you better pick it up, man. It was kind of, uh, kind of interesting. And, and yet Christ would never say that to us. Because you're not that good of a player, okay? You're, you're kind of really messed up. In fact, let's just be honest. You're the worst player in the world, okay? That's what the Bible would say. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It wasn't because of you were a great asset to the Christian family of God. Woo! We're going to pick you because you're going to help the kingdom of God. No, no, actually, it's quite the opposite. You're pretty messed up. And he didn't pick you because, something. you know, you were just wonderful in every way, he picked you because you were really messed up and you came to a realization of how messed up you were. And he loved you. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You couldn't add anything to the kingdom, he adds everything. In fact, what's interesting about this, I put uh, some cross references down, is that um, Luke 15 20, it's the prodigal father, prodigal son's story. The father's love brings the repentance. The repentance doesn't bring the father's love. Did you know that the father saw the son a long ways off? And he came out running towards him. And the son began to try to repent, try to say, hey, dad, I'm really, really sorry. And he, he smothered him with kisses. And he almost kind of shuts him down and says, oh, whatever. Come on, let's throw a party. You're back, man. I'm, I love you. D- do you understand that? It's not that you get your act together and then you come to Christ, you come to Christ, and He begins to change you out of His love. If you reverse that, that's called religion. You were smitten by His beauty and His love, and you recognized even more so that you were screwed up. By the way, this is what I found. The closer I get to Christ, the more jacked up I see that I am. And if you don't see that, it's because you're not walking close to Him, because First John makes that very clear. If you claim to be without sin, you deceive yourself, and the truth is not in you. And uh, you can see that Paul's walking with Christ because he says, man, I haven't arrived. I'm messed up. Boy, I desperately need the Savior. And so it's his love. It's his love that draws our heart to him. I'm a mess. Oh, I need a Savior. And uh, the more you begin to see that, the more that you can be honest about yourself. See, for years, I was that elder brother in the story 15 chapter i had left the father without leaving the farm and my sense of identity was wrapped up in my morality my virtuous having it all together behavior and so when someone would say something against that i was very defensive because i couldn't handle that because hey I, you know i've got to have this pristine perfect look but listen you don't have to when your identity's in christ and in the cross you can be honest about yourself you can admit shortcoming in fact if you're not it's because you're not in touch with reality. You're in denial. And the more you walk with him, the more you're going to see through the light of who you are, and you're going to run to him. You will run to him, and, and we'll talk about it in a little bit, but, man, you will appreciate that much more his grace. Whoever's forgiven much loves much. And guess what? How much we were forgiven? It took the Son of God on the cross to die for us. And when you understand that, wow, it changes everything. Here's the next point. By the way, it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. Romans 2, 4 goes right along with that. I know that Christ has made me his own when his intensity for me creates intensity within me for him. So that's what he's saying here. He's saying, man, he he has has made me his own, and so now I want him. I want more of him. Uh, John 6, 44, Jesus uh, made this pretty clear. He said that uh, that no one comes to me except the one who sent me draws him. Now, think about that just for a minute. Everybody look up here. This is what you need to understand. If while I'm talking here or during the worship time or at any time in your life, you have any inclination whatsoever, even the slightest desire to know God, to experience God, that's his work in your life because you're not... You're not good enough to kind of conjure that up on your own. You want to actually run the other way. The Bible talks about this sinful nature. We're we're self-absorbed. And not until he gets a hold of our heart and he begins to draw us. And that's what he's saying here. He, He works on our heart and he begins to draw us. And I begin to want him. When I begin to understand, he calls me his own. He calls me his own. When that begins to dawn on me, when I begin to understand that, it begins to change me. And then I want him more than anything. His intensity for me creates an intensity within me for him. See, that's the Christian life. The way you know Christ has made you his own is that you want to make him your own. Spiritual lethargy and apathy is gone. I mean, it's out. When a man falls in love, he is driven by an inner compulsion to know his beloved. I I remember when I first met Nancy, she came into that little youth group over off of 23rd Avenue in Camelback. I was teaching the youth group, and she came in there, and I could hardly get through the teaching, and I couldn't hardly wait to go over there and introduce myself to her, and then I walked her out to the car, and there was just something like there was this, as I stated here, there's this inner compulsion to want to know her, and uh, she played a little bit hard to get, quite honestly. And, uh, and I think it stirred up that appetite within me that much more, and I pursued her. But even more so has that happened in my relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. His love awakens our love in response. We love Him because He first loved us. Do you see His love? And so it starts here. Stop pretending to have it all together. That's a candid evaluation. And you can only do that in the context of His amazing love because if the acceptance you have in Him. You can admit wrong. Because it wasn't that that ultimately led you to him, was that you had to admit wrong, that you were a long ways from him for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God? Absolutely. So through the process of sanctification, you have to continue to do that. And there's a real safety in his arms of love to do that. Here's the next one, number two. We've got to steadily let go of past baggage. This is consistent elimination. Look at verse 13. There's a part of that he says forgetting what lies behind forgetting what lies behind i know that some of you we've had boy this last this uh last three months have been just a heck of a year i mean really a difficult year i know for me and i went through just a lot of stuff in my own personal life but then sorting through a lot of the tragedy that hit our church family and i know that some of you uh boy you desperately need to hear this next point and some of you have been hurt years ago and you still haven't let go of that stuff. And it's what it has inhibited you, it's it's haunted you, it has harassed you. It continues to hammer you to this day. And, and you can work through those things. This is what he's saying. Paul is saying, forgetting what lies behind. What did Paul have in his past? He killed Christians. He not only that, he lost everything for the in the pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can study through 2 Corinthians. He goes through this whole list of things that he had, had gone through. Unbelievable. So he's, he's talking out of experience. I gave you some uh, verses here to help you understand this. Matthew 6, 12, Jesus taught his disciples, teaches us on how to pray. And there's a segment in that prayer where he says, Forgive us of our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. He's teaching us that every day when we interact with God, part of that, that if you want to call it a checklist, part of this interaction with God is taking out the trash. And so we need to desperately take out the trash. As we head into 2011, you need to take out the trash. Every day, you need to take out the trash. Forgive us of our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Ephesians 4, 26 through 27. The Apostle Paul, once again, he writes here and he says, Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, what he's saying, before the sun sets, deal with the crap in your life. Don't take it into the next day, is what he's saying. Now, anger is is a secondary emotion. It's a response. It comes as a result of hurt. When we get hurt, we get angry. It's appropriate. It's part of it. Uh, Fear and frustration. And so what he's saying is be angry, but don't sin. Deal with it appropriately. And he says, if you don't... You guys remember what he says? You will give the devil a foothold. One of the easiest ways for the devil to get a hold of our life is for us to have bitterness in our life as it relates to the hurts that we've received from the past. By the way, everyone here is going to have hurts. Everyone here probably does have hurts. It's how you deal with those hurts. That's why he's saying, hey, forgetting what lies behind. Hebrews 12, 15, the writer there, he says, man, I am so... I'm so fearful that you might miss out on the grace of God, God's favor, that somehow you would push him away. And this is how he says that we would miss out on God's favor in our life and his grace in our life, that a bitter root would grow up within your life and cause trouble for your own life and defile many. So he gives us a really interesting description of bitterness. And he says, if you allow bitterness to grow up in your life, not only do we give the devil a foothold, But according to Hebrews, he says we miss the most important thing that our heart so desperately needs, and that's the grace of God, His favor, standing before the face of God and knowing how much He values us and loves us. It's the only thing that can ultimately bring contentment and satisfaction to the deepest places of our soul. So let me give you this next fill in the blank. How do we do this? How do we steadily let go of past baggage? Let's talk about, let's define this. The past can't really affect us, but our present feelings about the past can. It is called baggage. So when you think about the past, it can't hurt you in the, in the present, other than the fact that we have these present negative feelings as a result of these things. I want you to watch this story. This is Garrett's story. And then we'll continue on through our notes.
1: The struggles that I went through were endless. The pain is, it's really indescribable. The sleepless nights and the the cold sweats and the fear. I just said, why, why me? I felt abandoned by God. I guess I was eight years old and then part of my world came crashing down. We had just come home from school, and it was just like any other day. I just remember being in my house and a truck pulling up as fast as it could around the corner. I got news that my dad had just been murdered. We had a lot of SWAT team in our trees and, you know, all these police around everywhere, and they were protecting us. They changed our names, and they shipped us off undercover. They didn't know who the killers were yet, and they didn't know if we were going to be part of that deal, if we were next. My mom was in a, a hospital for depression, so we were by ourselves a lot for about a month. I remember the day that she came home. It was like awesome. It was like angels were singing, finally, you know, we could have our mom back. That night we went to bed. I remember waking up to a gunshot. I remember just sitting there and not moving, couldn't move because of just fear. I remember seeing it about 30 feet away. Uh, my mom lying on the floor, and then I walk over there to realize that my mom had just committed suicide. That was kind of the, the straw that broke the camel 's back for my life as far as the dysfunction and the hurt and the pain and the struggle and the fear and the questions about God, God, where are you at? why? You know, I mean, I was just so hurt, and I kind of just rejected God after that point as far as anything, you know, any possibility. Because the God that I know of, the good God who loves me, does not let these kind of things happen. I find myself, even now, still struggling with thinking the worst thing is going to happen at every turn. If one out of 100 people were going to be killed today, it's going to be me for sure. And that's how I think. I would go to bed in cold sweats for years. I mean, couldn't sleep at night. Any sound would be my last moment to live. Every night I would just kind of make peace with whatever, saying, okay, well, I guess this is it. This is the end. And it sounds so psychotic. a lot of my childhood and that kind of like angered me. I really felt angered at the fact that I, I couldn't be normal again. The issues started creeping up inside of me and the deficiencies that I had because I didn't have a father or a mother. I think the major ramification that I've had to deal with since all this stuff has been my relationships. I have defense mechanisms that come up. I learn to be sarcastic or, you know, take shots at people to keep them away. So I was always cautious about letting people too close because I didn't want to be wounded again that way. That was, there was just too much pain there. The fear of rejection. The fear of abandonment. Oh man, those things still come up. The one thing that really stood out to me that's been really tough even when I was graduating high school and even through all you know the honors in basketball and all the different things that have happened in my life that, that my parents haven't been at and they haven't got to experience that and I've got, I haven't got to experience the joy of a father saying I'm proud of him you know he's my son I came to accept the reality of well, this is what my life is it's not a dream I can't just wake up and everything can be back to normal again I'm, I'm not going to be the same as most of my friends. and That's hard to come to grips with. At the end, looking back, even though it was the most horrific thing to go through for a kid, I can see God's hands through the whole thing. He's used that in my life to make me a better person. Now I have a story to tell people. Now I have something that can help somebody else in their tough times.
0: So how can that be true about us as we work through our issues? Next point in your notes is that baggage is both the unresolved sins I have committed and the sins committed against me. So both the things that I've done in the past that when I think about it, it kind of creates this burn within me, this resentment like or this uh, this regret and then maybe even resentment as it relates to how people have treated me. What's the key to this? How do I work through these things? The key is receiving and giving God's forgiveness of me. There's a wonderful story found in Matthew 18. It's, it's a very convicting story. Jesus is approached by his disciples, particularly Peter. Peter says, Jesus, if, if our brother offends us or hurts us, how many times should we forgive him? Should we do it seven times? He thought he was being generous, and Jesus says, no, seven times 70. In essence, what he was saying is that it needs to be an unlimited amount of time, a number of times. No matter how many times someone may offend you, you need to keep on forgiving them. And then he goes on to a story. It's interesting. It's where a a king is going to settle accounts, and there's a man, a servant of this king, who comes to him who owes the king 20 years' worth of wages. (laughs) That's a lot. And so the king absorbs the debt, forgives him, lets him go. This servant goes out on the street, finds someone that only owes him one day's worth of wages and begins to choke him out. The king finds out about it, and the story ends by the king throwing this man into jail, and he's in bondage. And really what you learn about it is that it's not until you understand how much Jesus Christ has forgiven you is to that degree, are you able to forgive others? In fact, what others have done to you doesn't even come close in comparison to how much Jesus Christ has forgiven you. And, and it's important to understand that, allow that to get deep into your heart. And it really comes down to when, when dealing with the issues of your life, it's, you can take the path of either the, the bondage of bitterness, is what he's saying, or the freedom of forgiveness, But the freedom of forgiveness only comes to the degree that when you look at the cross and you understand that it took the Son of God to die for you, that's how sinful you were. You were headed to hell. When you understand that and understand the implications of that, only to the degree that your heart is filled up with His love and His forgiveness, then you can offer that to others. And your life becomes an overflow of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The only reason why we struggle with unforgiveness is that we're not living in the reality of how much Christ has forgiven us. That's the truth of it. Now, I'm not saying it's an easy thing. It's taken me a lot in in various areas of my life to learn learn that. But it shows you my own sense of denial and my own pride and all the stuff that tends to mask that within my own life. There's a story found in Luke 7.47 where uh, actually uh, 7.47 actually says that whoever is forgiven much loves much. In there, and so to the degree that I understand that, is to the degree that my love for Christ just begins to grow phenomenally. The more in touch I am with of my own sinfulness, and then I'm able to forgive others. Here's the next one, next point on your notes: my past no longer has a hold on me. When I can recall it, without reliving it, when I can talk about it and use it as a platform of testimony of God's grace. And in fact, when I talk about, for instance, those things that I've done in the past and I share that with others in the appropriate context, it actually stirs up greater joy within me of God's grace towards me, the things that I have I regret doing. And even those things that people have hurt me, it helps me to appreciate that God's grace is sufficient. And I use that as a part of that the testimony that Christ wants to use in my life as he is, continues to shape me. And he recycles my pain. In fact, how a person mentally evaluates an event... A past event determines how they feel and respond. And so when you mentally look back at your past, whether it's sins you've committed or sins committed against you, it's imperative, it's extremely important, it is a priority priority that you would think through the implications of the cross, you filter it through all that Jesus is and all that he's done for you. That's the reason why I put these two verses down. Romans 8.28 or Genesis 50.20. Let me ask you this. Do you think that there is any herd habit or hang-up or anything that we've ever done in the past that, can, that, can, that we cannot get through, that there's no way that we can get through it? Uh, uh, I'm not even asking that correctly, am I? <laughs> is there anything that we face in life, whether it's something that we've sinned or someone sinning against us, that can so bog down our life that we can't live the fullness of life that Christ ultimately offers us? No, there's nothing. God's grace is sufficient. He can overcome anything and everything, no matter what past you come from. He recycles that pain. He works it for our good. And what happens oftentimes if we're being bogged down by those things, if it's haunting us or harassing us, it's, it's really a lack of faith, and faith has to do with walking through the implications. We're not thinking through the implications of all that Christ is for us in that particular situation in our life. We're not saying, hey, for we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Do you believe that? Now apply that, those, that verse to the specifics of what you've gone through. Do you believe that God forgives us of all of our sins? That God is able to forgive us of all of our sins completely? as uh, 1 John 1, 9, that he is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins? Do you believe that? Are you still living in guilt and shame? You don't believe that if you are as it relates to past sins. Do you still have resentment and you can't talk about how people have hurt you in the past? And I understand it takes time to work through that. But you need to get to a place to where you can actually talk about it and you don't relive it. And you use it as a part of your testimony and part of God's grace. Make sense? But it requires for us to think about it, as I said, how a person mentally evaluates it. Our biblical worldview needs to come into place in those specific areas of our life and understand how the cross applies to those specific things in our life. So... Joy and exhaustion happens when I stop pretending to have it all together. Candid evaluation. Steadily let go of past baggage. Consistent elimination. And then number three, stay focused on finding deep satisfaction in Christ. Careful exaltation. Look at verse 12. He says, I press on to make it my own. Verse 13, but one thing I do. You notice he doesn't say ten things I do. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say ten things I do. I've got my list here. 2011, this is my list of things I need to do. He doesn't do that. In fact, don't do that. You're going to be sh- scattered, and you're going to be exhausted. But he says, one thing, one thing I do, straining forward to what lies ahead. The word straining there literally means, and we get the word agonize. I'm agonizing. I'm reaching towards this. Verse 14, he says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What is, what is he talking about? This is Paul's bucket list. How many are familiar with the movie Bucket List that came out a number of years ago? It was uh, starring Morgan Freeman and Jack Nicholson. They were about ready to die. They made up this list that they said, I'm going to do this before I die. Paul saying, hey, this is what my life is all about. Forget the bucket list. Basically, he would say, it's all crap compared to, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering. Even if I go through suffering, I know that he is with me and I can put his glory on display and to become like him in his death so that somehow I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. What he's talking about there, he's talking about justification, sanctification, and ultimately glorification. He's talking about knowing Christ. I love it. The cure to our exhaustion is to exhaust ourselves in the pursuit of our deepest satisfaction in Christ. The reason we run ourselves ragged, and I did this for many years, workaholism, can't say no, OCD, perfectionism, drivenness, imbalances, is because I'm not keeping myself deeply satisfied in Christ through spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines are those things that we're doing even like right now as we study God's Word in our personal time. We study God's Word, we pray, we get together with other Christians and what that does is it increases our capacity to experience more of God. I shared this on uh, Christmas Eve. That It's one thing to know that a cinnamon roll lavished with frosting is yummy. It's good. Yes, it's one thing to know, that, to, to know that mentally, have that mental ascent towards that. It's another thing, completely, to have that sweetness on your tongue chased with a latte. Ooh, I love it. It's one thing to know that God loves you. Everybody here would say, I know that God loves me. It's another thing to have his love, the sweetness of his love on your heart to the degree that it it brings a sense of satisfaction and contentment and it chases away the fears of your life. What are you afraid of as we head into 2011? What is your greatest difficulty? Do you know his love in the midst of that? See, that's what Paul is saying. I want to know him. I want to know his love. I haven't arrived yet. I get glimpses of it. I mean, I get glimpses of it even when I, when I spend time. There are times in my personal devotions that just, I weep. I'm so overwhelmed with his, his warm embrace, his love. And I'll, I'll tell you what, you can't, you can't defeat me then, man, because I'm coming out of my devotional time just knowing the reality of his love, and I'm going to live out the rest of that day, at least that day, in his love. That's what Paul's talking about here. Here's the next point. If I pursue everything, I will be stressed and scattered. But if I pursue this one thing, Christ, then everything will fall into place. I mean, this is the power of intense focus. A simple, a, a simple magnifying glass can focus the rays of the sun and it can start a fire. But really even, here's another illustration, the super intense focus of a laser beam has amazing power. It can burn a hole in diamond. So when you look at this, laser differs from regular light in that laser is focused on a single point. Regular light is scattered. Sometimes our lives tend to be a bit scattered. I just thought through all of my different roles and responsibility. I'm a brother. I'm a son. I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm a grandfather. I'm a son-in-law. I'm a brother-in-law. I'm an uncle. Uh, I'm a cousin, a nephew, a friend, a pastor, a teacher, a leader. Wow, just going through the list exhausts me. As I think about all the responsibilities I have, but what Paul is saying, no, focus on this one thing. Focus on knowing Christ. I will guarantee you, it'll make you a better spouse. It'll make you a better parent. You want to be a better parent? Focus on Jesus. Get to know Him. Make Him your deepest delight. You will begin to see, if you think through the implications of that, because that sense of completeness and contentment, then you're going to be able to speak the truth in love in that relationship and, and respond to life appropriately. Here's our last point. You know you know God because you have a consuming passion to know Him more. That's that's what he's getting at here. You want to know Him more than anything else. You want to know Him more than anything else. John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Knowing God isn't just the goal of life. It is life. I've got a couple quotes here that I wanted to end with. And Just for us to reflect on, and then we'll pray, and we'll be out of here. The A.W. Tozer really struggled with the fact that a lot of people thought that, hey, I committed my life to Jesus, I signed the card, I got dunked in the tank, I walked the aisle, I did all these things, and they thought, well, that's the extent of it, I know God. Well, no, you don't. In fact, he believed that that this pursuit of God was a lifelong passion. It wasn't a destination, it was a journey. John White writes in his book, The Cost of Commitment, he says, It's a magnificent obsession with a a heavenly treasure beside which everything else in life is of no value. Listen to what uh, A.W. Tozer says, To have found God and still to pursue Him is the soul's paradox of love. St. Bernard said this, we taste thee, O thou living bread, and long to feast upon thee still. We drink of thee the Fountain Head, and thirst our souls from thee to fill. Matthew Henry put it this way. Wherever there is true grace, there is desire for more grace. That's what Paul's getting at here. This was the passion of his life. The evidence that you have him is that you want more of him. And the reason... The reason you want to know him more is because everything he, Jesus, lived and died for was that you and I would know him. Here's the last point on your notes. It's on the bottom of your notes. So we, I didn't even get touched on verses 15 through 21, but this is how we would sum it up. It goes perfect with this. These are the marks of the mature who are role models, careful to not lose ground in, this, in their passionate pursuit of Christ in this life while homesick for the life to come. Stand with me for closing prayer. Next week we're going to talk uh, about anxiety. Oh, good. How we can work through the anxiety of our life. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful that in the midst of our exhaustion you bring joy. Help us in 2011 to stop pretending to have it all together, to have actual candid evaluation of our lives God we so desperately need you and when we don't think we desperately need you even more so do we need you because we're out of touch with the reality of our true condition God may we also steadily let go of past baggage I know that there are many here this last year has just been a, a, a really hurtful year And God even today this morning may the process begin to take place as they let go of that past baggage and, and consistently eliminate those things God that you would use those in our lives to bring glory to you And God, ultimately, may we stay focused on finding deep satisfaction in you, Lord Jesus. Careful exaltation, because God, you are most glorified in us as we are more and more satisfied in you. And when we are satisfied in you, we are crucified to this world. So help us, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said.